0: I'm Martin Reeves, chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and I'm joined today's insights podcast by influential author and speaker on management topics, former media CEO and documentarian, Margaret Heffernan. Uh, we'll be discussing our new book, which has been just nominated for the FT Best Business Book of the Year prize called Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. So congratulations on the book, Margaret, that I really enjoyed and Welcome.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So big and a very topical subject, Margaret, and if you boil it right down, what is your view of how to navigate the future? Because I know that you don't use the word predict, you use the word navigate.
1: Yes. Well, you know, a very big chunk of the book at the beginning is about the degree to which we really can't forecast the future and kind of the history of forecasting and why and how it continues to let us down. You know, whether you talk about economic and financial forecasting, whether you think about political forecasting and using history as a model and other kinds of models for individuals such as, you know, psychological profiling and DNA. All of these are useful tools. None of them are by any means perfect They all have absolutely intrinsic problems within them that I think are ineradicable. And what that means is that we have to accept that uncertainty is always with us. Now, bear in mind, I wrote this book last year, so well before COVID-19. And I felt this was going to be, you know, quite a hard argument to win because we are so addicted to certainty. We like to think that somebody somehow knows how to find it. I think the argument has been won by events. And I use the metaphor of navigation because if you're on the water, you can have a sense of direction of where you're going, but you also are quite alert to the fact that storms and freak events and winds and tides and all sorts of other things may slightly throw you off course. You are never at sea totally in charge of events. And I think it's really important for us as individuals and as leaders of organizations to understand that uncertainty is always there, that we have to accept that it's part of the environment in which we operate. And however rigorous our forecasting methodologies might be, all sorts of things happen that nobody can foresee, and that we have got to get used to.
0: Let's look at the alternatives to prediction then. You spend quite a bit of time talking about scenario planning. Scenario planning, I think, is well known. It's uh, been with us for some time. I think most companies have been trained on it or done some of it. But you say that we don't use it as much as we should and that management has this tendency towards prediction addiction. How do we break our prediction addiction and, and what's stopping us from embracing scenario and other similar methodologies more fully, do you think?
1: Well, I think one of the first kind of institutional issues is that generally speaking, thinking about the future is labeled planning and planning typically resides in finance and finance typically works from the status quo and applies various formula to project growth. And what that does is it doesn't really take into account The huge complexity of the world in which all organizations function, it absolutely can't take into account uncertainty because obviously the difference between risk and uncertainty is that uncertainty is unquantifiable. So if a big part of your existence is unquantifiable, starting with a quantitative process is obviously going to leave you willfully blind.
0: So that's the the problem, if you will. But what's the cure to that? Because at some level, intellectually, we may realize that, but still struggle for this desire for certainty.
1: Yeah. So I think there's several problems. One is, you know, the um, institutional heft of finance. But I think it's also that most people in corporations are not recruited for their imaginative skills. They are not rewarded or promoted because of their divergent thinking. We tend in business to be quite focused on binary questions, you know, what's right and what's wrong, rather than possibles and probables. And I think we hugely overweight the validity and certainty of numbers. And of course, this is why Pierre Wack, who's really considered the father of scenario planning, was so absolutely determined that it could not be done, you know, with computer-based models. Because there's too much in thinking about the future, which cannot be captured in numbers. And so you need different kinds of people with different kinds of minds. And I think particularly, and this is really the great advance in scenario planning, I would say in the last 20 years, you need a highly diverse group of people participating in it. And that may be diverse in terms of, you know, the obvious things or gender, ethnicity. But I think it's also important in terms of mindset and in terms of background and in terms of age. Very interesting, you know, Michael Koch, who used to run scenario planning within Syngenta, was very struck that while senior corporate executives were barely able to do scenario planning, younger people, particularly those who do a lot of computer games, could take to it like ducks to water because in a way every computer game is a scenario plan and playing with the possibilities is both exciting and fun so it's a positive experience and it's how you win so what he found was that these younger people for whom playing with possibilities is you know not intimidating they were much better at imagining different kinds of futures than those who were very entrenched in numbers,
0: and certainty I'm hoping that my own training on science fiction will substitute for lack of training on video games. But that's a very interesting point. If I could tease out a couple of threads there, so you mentioned the connection to diversity and to imagination. Let's let's take imagination first. You claim in the book that scenario planning and experiments release human imagination. Could you unpack that for us a little bit, please?
1: Yes, I think once you are confronting an issue and you know that there is no right answer, so you're confronting a problem which you simply, you can't come up with an obvious or clearly right answer, then that should, and usually does, prompt you to think much more discursively, to ask non-binary questions. You know, what else could we do? What would other kinds of companies do? What might other people in this circumstance do? to start asking kind of what if and what could questions rather than what should we do. So I think, you know, if I think, for example, of a, the sort of bloodbath in retail over the last 10 years, you know, it's very striking how retailers have really stuck to their knitting, doing all the things they've always done. So they cut costs, they cut staff, they do all sorts of sales and so on. But there's been almost no experimentation or imagination applied to the retail problem, almost nothing done to make stores actually worth visiting. But if you start asking yourself the question, not how do we hit our numbers, but what might we do to make our stores a destination, a place that people talk about having visited, now you're into a very different cognitive territory where there isn't an obvious right answer. And at that point, you start surfacing more possibilities. And you know, a very big theme in my book is that the way that you navigate the future is by identifying possibilities, which may not be exactly what you want, but take you in the direction that you want. And that is a better way of navigating than waiting for the perfect plan, because given the speed at which business moves these days, the perfect plan is absolutely guaranteed if it does arrive to arrive too late. So I think also that the whole issue around experimentation is to capture participation across a broader group of people. So, you know, again, in my book, I talk about how the chief data officer at the Bank of England addressed the problem that, you know, there's more and more and more and more and more data, more and more and more more analysis required by regulation, and of course, no more resources. This is a classic example of a question he did not know how to answer, and it was answered by a whole slew of experiments, not one of which solved the whole problem, but the combination of which did.
0: Yes, I I was um, trying to make sense of your book, and I drew a little map for myself, and uh, let me test the thread on you. I I see a thread that once you've renounced the illusion of uh, prediction, then essentially you're thinking what the future could be. You're asking questions. Whether those questions are interesting or useful depends on who's thinking them. So that's connected to diversity. And since the future is not certain and there are multiple possibilities, we have to imagine, hence the connection to imagination, creativity, and the art. Would that be a reasonable representation of your argument?
1: That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, when you have uncertainty, on the one hand, you can be, as many are, totally downcast that there's no right answer. On the other hand, you know, you could see this as an opportunity to start exploring some new, better ways of doing whatever your business does. And I think that we have become so addicted to certainty and the notion that there is a right answer, that this has really constrained the imaginative capability of many, many people in business. One of the things that I've seen, you know, over the last few months, given that I work with very, very large organizations and startups and you know not-for-profit institutions like the nhs and a lot of very commercial organizations you know what i've seen across the piece is some of these organizations are absolutely frozen at best they are simply nipping and tucking their existing plan but they are completely frozen imaginatively while others Are jumping in and saying, okay, we're in a completely different place than the one we expected to be in. So what are the resources we have? What are the assets we have? And how do we reconfigure those to have meaning to our market and to society today? And you can't divide these two approaches across sector or size or anything like that. I think that really the truth is that those who are sticking to a planning mindset are rather depressed. Very pessimistic, and they have a great sense of loss. And those who are thinking, okay, reconfigure, rethink, they're quite optimistic, they're quite radical, they're accelerating out of the status quo, and they're very much more hopeful.
0: One mystery in the book for me was I might have expected you to talk more about shaping as a strategy. So you talk about the fallacy of prediction, and you talk about preparedness as an alternative, and experimentation and creativity. But of course, sometimes one can shape the environment. Could you tell us a little more why you didn't put greater emphasis on shaping?
1: Well, I think there are two things. I would say that I think experimentation is a form of shaping in the sense that experimentation is a form of approximation. We think it's a bit like this, and then we think it's a bit like that. And so after a number of experiments, you may reshape who you are or where you think you are but i'm a little skeptical about companies that truly believe they can reshape the market by legal means
0: so it's not that you think they can but they shouldn't it's that you think that it may be exaggerated that they think they could
1: i think that they do better and this is part of where preparedness comes in but i think they do better to think of the ecosystem that they inhabit and how they can build a stronger presence within that generally all organizations live within a highly complex ecosystem. They're part of that, and they, one would hope, understand their own operations, but they often dimly understand the operations of all of those other institutions and forces at work that have an impact on their own operations. And significantly, it's towards building better alliances and partnerships with those other institutions and forces that allows them to have more influence over their own fate, if you like. But I'm wary and always wary of corporate leaders who say that they can bend the market to their will.
0: So would the argument be that in many cases that's simply not possible? In some cases it might be, and it might even be advantageous, but in, in the long-term coevolution or mutual adaptation or common purpose is going to be the better strategy. Would that be a good way of calibrating the role of shaping?
1: I think that's true. And I think in general, organizations have more influence on events to the degree that they are connected to others, but they're always In any kind of partnership or alliance, they're still going to pursue their own self-interest. And I think it's quite interesting how hard companies typically find to play well with others. Much as they might like to, certainly the contemporary notion of leadership barely allows this to be done well. I mean, it's also true to say that there's a lot more discussion these days about the need for a certain amount of humility within business leadership. And I think that if that is a trend that's sustained humility, both in terms of oneself and one's organization in the scale of against the scale of the world, I think you might see a developing capacity for partnerships that so far has largely eluded companies.
0: So just to take another thread, and you've spoken about this before too, the connection to the arts. There are a couple of intriguing parts of the book that were quite refreshing to read in a business book. You talked about the late style of many artists, a final period of exuberant creativity and invention that you see in many artists. I've done a lot of work on what I call vitality, the capacity for growth, And it strikes me that one sees almost the exact opposite tendency in corporations on the whole, which is that the larger and older they are, the greater proportion of their value that comes from exploiting yesterday's recipes rather than creating new ones. So I'm wondering whether that's because the arts and business are just fundamentally different enterprises in this respect, or that this is a missed opportunity for business. If it's a missed opportunity, how could we avail ourselves of this sort of flourishing and, uh, and reinvention and reinfusion of creativity?
1: Well, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say, first of all, you know, whether or not late style can apply to businesses is tricky because, of course, with artists, you notice that this happened after their death. And with some of the companies that I think certainly demonstrating late flourishing, one doesn't know if this is middle age or old age yet, right? But I would certainly say if you take some very mature companies, you can certainly see a huge degree of flourishing in them now. And of course, the poster child for this, of course, is Unilever, an ancient company with an ancient tradition that has reinvented itself pretty spectacularly to the degree that it's become a kind of poster child for what a modern business needs to be. I've written in detail about Nokia, Which has to be a poster child for reinvention, you know, from a lumber mill to a power generator to a rubber boots and cable manufacturer. And now one of the most important companies in the world as far as internet infrastructure is concerned, and possibly the only really crucial internet infrastructure business in the Western world. And its ability to reemerge from the crisis of, you know, handheld mobile phones is nothing short of spectacular. And I think what's so interesting is that because it went radically from a consumer-based model to a business-to-business model, everybody thinks it disappeared. But not only has it not disappeared, it is a company of fundamental importance to everything we do every day, given that about over 30% of internet traffic goes through Nokia infrastructure. I wouldn't necessarily call it late style because that suggests they're going to die soon, which I'm not sure any of these companies will. I think you could say exactly the same thing about Microsoft. I remember people writing obituaries of Microsoft, you know, in the kind of early teens of this century and the speed with which it moved to the cloud, the speed with which Nadella changed the culture from one of hyper competitiveness and a real dog eat dog culture to one of collaboration. Is absolutely jaw dropping. So I don't really buy this idea, and I would call it an alibi, that bigger, older companies can't change. I mean, even Walmart, I have to say, has pioneered some forms of sustainability that smaller companies would balk at. So, you know, I think some of this is is owed to the innovator's dilemma, a thesis of which, you know, much is actually incorrect. And I think it's a kind of alibi for, oh, we're so big, we can't change. I think actually Nokia and Microsoft and even Apple, for example, when jobs return, shows that actually you can change. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that you don't need a pretty courageous, determined ambition. But I don't buy this idea that, oh, there's a point at which you're past it. I think there may be a point at which your leaders are past it. But I don't think that's endemic to the business itself. When we come back to artistry, I mean, it's interesting because business schools grew out of engineering schools. And there's a great desire in the world at the moment to call everything a science. Economists have physics envy and keep aspiring to the condition of science that they never meet and I think never will meet. Same is true of the so-called social sciences. And, you know, people talk about management science. I increasingly think that management is an art form. It's about integrating all kinds of experience in multiple media, if you like, and finding kind of purpose and meaning within all of those forms. And I'm very struck, you know, that while a few years ago, everybody was saying, well, let's cut arts from education. Liberal arts is a waste of time. Everybody should learn how to code. You know, now we're very struck by fantastic CEOs like Stuart Butterfield, who, gosh, amazingly enough, runs an important tech company and is not an engineer. You know, that actually figuring out new narratives, if you like, for businesses in an age of turmoil is a fundamentally creative act. And I think that those who are accustomed to predictability and highly linear thinking We'll find this new environment requires much more of them than a sort of engineering mindset of cause and effect.
0: Let's come back to that theme of transformation or renaissance. I think the examples you gave of resurgent companies are great, but of course, there are not so many examples. If, uh, you know, probably the most valuable nugget that could come out of today's, today's conversation is any extent to which we can decode. What is the essence of of doing that correctly? Because many companies attempt it, many companies fail. By our calculations, about 75% or more of major ambitious transformation attempts fail. What is the essence of why Nokia, Microsoft, the original Apple turnaround succeeded? Because they were indeed spectacular renaissances, and that's a very difficult thing to do.
1: It is a very difficult thing to do, but I think there are a couple of things that connect them and connect them with similar um, situations that I'm seeing right now. The first is the elimination of complacency that the numbers tell us the truth. I remember when I was running tech companies in the United States asking my chairman, who was also my lead investor, how could he manage so many companies in his portfolio and know what was going on? He said, well, I just look at the numbers. Well, the numbers did not, honestly, did not tell him what was going on in many of those businesses. So I think the first thing is to understand that the success and relevance of a business, of course, the numbers are going to tell you a lot, but they aren't going to tell you what the company isn't doing that the world wants. It isn't going to tell you which bits of the company are becoming irrelevant. And it isn't going to tell you the opportunities and needs that exist out there to which you could respond, but don't. And I think really, when I look at these big turnarounds, part of what's characteristic of them is that the thinking around them and the transformation programs enlisted people at all levels of the organization. In Nokia, this is particularly pronounced that it is not thought, well, we're going to, as a senior leadership team, the 12 or 15 or 20 of us, retreat to a swanky hotel somewhere and figure it all out. There is a widespread call to action for ideas, thinking, suggestions, input, perspectives, which get folded into what are the possibilities for us here. And the big learning, I think, for me in this context, is that when... Transformation programs are developed through what we now call open strategy. So very wide participation. They're much more likely to succeed for the very reason that crafting these strategies is transformational in and of itself. And what you don't end up with, which is what I think most change programs do, is here's a plan that nobody really understands. It seems to have come from people up on high, And now they're going to spend a huge amount of money in corporate comms, shoving it down our throats in the pious hope that people will understand it. I think that to the degree that transformation programs are developed organically within the organization as a whole, the process becomes the program. And I think the rise of open strategy is a really positive indication of this. You don't have to go around teaching everybody why we're doing what we're doing because people have been part of understanding that.
0: So to bring this uh, full circle, Margaret, now I guess in a situation where all of these topics that are interesting and important and perennial, uh, we're actually living every day in the uncertainty inflicted on businesses business by the COVID crisis our observation would be that there's a huge spread of performance. The competitive divergence seems huge in terms of the impact and the resilience of different enterprises in the same industry. Would you have any observations fresh from the field about what you see about how companies are differentially coping with the uncertainty, perhaps some turning it to positive advantage, others ameliorating it, others doing the wrong things? How do you interpret the spread that you see?
1: Well, I think, you know, generally speaking, what I would say is Uh, Going back to something I said earlier, I tend to think about it in a rather mundane way, uh, very unfancy language. The companies I see that are really struggling, and some of the ones I'm working with, I think are truly in a death spiral, are sticking to their plan and cutting and cutting and cutting and doing no new fundamental rethinking. They're pinning their hopes on forecasts about when the pandemic will be over and when the economy will bounce back. So I think intellectually, they're pretty passive. The companies I see doing really well thrown out the recipe. They've opened the refrigerator and said, what have we got and what can we make with it? And in many cases, things that they thought they might do five years from now, they're doing now. So they're saying, actually, let's forget the intervening stages. Let's go ahead and get ahead of this crisis, accelerate out of the crisis. And they are, to reference my earlier point, they are involving quite a broad cross-section of their organizations and often their customers or their partners in this discussion. This contrast between sticking to the recipe or actually looking in the fridge and saying, what can we make with what we have? To me, that is really dividing the multiple companies I work with into those that are kind of malingering and those that are flourishing. Let me be clear. The ones that are flourishing aren't having a ton of fun every day. This is still exceptionally hard work. It's hard intellectual work. It's often just a gigantic volume of work, but they have hope and they have a sense of where they're going you know, which they are navigating rather than just kind of being flotsam on the waves of COVID, on the waves of economic decision-making that's out of their
0: hands. It's a very inspiring note to end on, Margaret. So thank you very much for spending time with me today, discussing your new book, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future, which is published by Simon & Schuster and released uh, early next month in the US, September the 8th. Congratulations again, Margaret, and thank you for the time.
1: Well, thank you for your questions and uh, good luck in all your work. It's an interesting time.